Well, thank you for joining us again. My name is John Clark, and this is the Jazz Focus. Very happy that you've chosen to uh, listen to another podcast. This is number four in our series, and uh, it's going to be dedicated to a particular album. And this album represents quite a lot, actually, a summation of a whole style, in fact. It was called The Big Reunion, and uh, it featured members of the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra. This was several years after Fletcher Henderson died. He died in the early 1950s, and this particular band got together for the Great South Bay Jazz Fest on Long Island in the summer of 1957, and many uh, Henderson alumni were present, uh, and a few who weren't associated with Henderson to fill out the ranks as well. Now, a little bit on Fletcher Henderson's career. He was a uh, piano player, and he came... Uh, from uh, Atlanta, I believe, and he came to New York as a, as a graduate student. He was going to be studying chemistry, and uh, in order to make ends meet, he took piano gigs on the side and found that that was a whole lot more lucrative. This was in the very late 1910s and early 1920s, and his musical ability and training served him in good stead because he could... Uh, be a music director for different singers. We talked uh, in the first uh, podcast about the classic blues era and how African-American women were uh, introduced quite suddenly into the recording market to sing blues and blues-styled songs in 1920. And uh, their popularity of those singers uh, obviously meant that there were uh, lots of spaces for them to record and the demand rose for more singers and more musicians to play with them and to direct their music as well. And Fletcher Henderson stepped right into that uh, a gap and, and and never looked back. His chemistry career ended rather suddenly, uh, but he was a full-time musician by about 1920 or so. He led the band that toured with Ethel Waters, the great singer, blues singer, cabaret singer, uh, on a tour through the Midwest that ended up down in New Orleans in about 1922, I think it was. He actually met Louis Armstrong at the time, and he tried to get Louis to join the uh, tour to come with the band backing Ethel Waters, but Louis didn't want to go. He was a homebody, uh, and he said, I, I'll go if you take my buddy Zooty Singleton on drums, and they already had a drummer, so that didn't happen. Anyway, uh, Fletcher Henderson made many, many recordings uh, backing up blues singers, some classical uh, performers as well, African-American classical performers who were recording for the Black Swan label. Um, the Black Swan label was uh, founded by Harry Pace and W.C. Handy in about 1921. It was an all uh, black uh, label. It was run by African Americans. It was staffed by African Americans. I believe the investors uh, who invested in it were African American, and of course, they just uh, recorded African American artists. And they tried initially to record African American concert artists, violinists, uh, concert singers, things like that. But they found pretty quickly that the best-selling records were ones that were done by people like Ethel Waters singing popular music and blues. So Fletcher Henderson became the recording director of that label. It only lasted a year, year and a half or so before it went out of business. But Henderson moved uh, around into other labels as well. And uh, he had a, a, a group of musicians who would accompany him to the recording studios to back whatever singer might be. And they also recorded stock arrangements of popular tunes of the day, so records would sell the popular tunes. That was part of the industry as well. And the story goes that uh, somebody came into a recording session and said that the uh, club Alabama, I think it was in New York uh, City, was looking for a band. And Henderson said, well, that's nice, but I don't have a band. And the person said, well, yes, you do. It's right here. And so the band that was recording uh, that day went down and did an audition playing the stock arrangements that they had played in the studio, and they got the job. Now, this band was only about six or seven pieces. It was probably a... Um, 
glorified uh, Dixieland band, really, a New Orleans-style band. The recordings by King Oliver and his Creole jazz band and some of the early Clarence Williams bands were quite popular at the time. And so to have a band with two or three or four horns and then a rhythm section, that was pretty much what African-American popular music was doing at the time. So Henderson got that job and uh, gradually started adding pieces to his ensemble as well until by, oh, 1924 or so, it had come out to about 10, 9 or 10 pieces. Usually bands of that day that were playing stock arrangements that were published for dance bands would have been two trumpets, a trombone, two or three saxophones, and a rhythm section of piano and either a banjo or a guitar, usually a tuba and drums, and sometimes a violin in there as well. And so if you have that many musicians, of course, you needed these stock arrangements. But Henderson was also fortunate in that one of the musicians who was with him uh, early on was Don Redman, who was a saxophone player from Piedmont, West Virginia. And uh, Redman was a child prodigy. He could write music as well as play quite well and played virtually every instrument in the band besides. And he started making arrangements. And he, more than that, he started doctoring the stock arrangements. These published uh, arrangements were somewhat generic, although some of the better ones were really quite good and people still play them today. But uh, rather, Don Redmond started moving things around and adding an introduction, changing choruses, changing keys, you know, bringing in an ending, doing different things like that, and also incorporating improvisation into these stocks. And of course, that wasn't something that was written in at the time. But the Henderson Band had some marvelous soloists at this time. It had Coleman Hawkins on tenor sax. It had um, Joe Smith on trumpet. And it had uh, Charlie Green on trombone, in addition to Don Redman as well. Kaiser Marshall was the drummer. Really some very fine, top-shelf African-American musicians of the time. And Henderson was sort of known uh, in the industry as the Paul Whiteman of the race, as he was called. Uh, the Black Paul Whiteman. And that's kind of where he was headed. He wanted to have that kind of success. Paul Whiteman was really getting going around 1922 or 23. He had his first hit recordings, and Henderson was looking to emulate that type of success as well. Along about 1924, in the summer, Henderson remembered Louis Armstrong and uh, had been hearing reports of how successful he had been in Chicago playing with King Oliver's band and sent for him and asked him if he would like a job. And uh, Armstrong really didn't want any part of it, but his wife, Lillian Harden Armstrong, said, oh, yes, you do, and sent him, basically, and said, this is your chance to get out from under the shadow of King Oliver and play with a top-notch, you know, sophisticated big band in New York City, and, you know, we'll see where you go from there. And so for just about exactly a year, from uh, August 1924 until the beginning of September of 19, I guess the beginning of October of 1925, Armstrong was part of the Henderson Band. He was actually an addition, so he was the third trumpet player. Many of these stock arrangements did not have three trumpet parts. So he probably made up his own part, or the three trumpet players switched around, or Don Redman wrote some arrangements that had three trumpets as well. And he also brought a friend of his from Chicago, Buster Bailey, on clarinet and saxophone, and he was considered one of the best clarinet players of the day. And so now the Henderson Band was up to about uh, 11 or 12 pieces and uh, started playing at the Roseland Ballroom in New York, where it really became uh, the band to hear uh, in New York City. And Louis Armstrong's reputation uh, spread far and wide as a performer, uh, a trumpet player certainly, but also as a singer, even though he didn't sing too much on records at the time. He had a very short uh, scat vocal on Everybody Loves My Baby, which he recorded with Henderson. 
And of course, the recordings that they made became quite influential as well. Most of these were stock arrangements or Don Redman arrangements, uh, and that continued through the 20s. Even after Armstrong left and they started getting replacements who sounded like Louis Armstrong, people like Rex Stewart, Tommy Ladnier, uh, people like that, um, they were still using stocks or Don Redman's uh, original arrangements, which he started to do more of. And then when Redman left in the late 20s to go with McKinney's Cotton Pickers, Benny Carter came in, did some arrangements. Henderson started buying arrangements from different people, even Bill Chalice, who was uh, doing arranging for Paul Whiteman. Uh, and then eventually Henderson started arranging himself in the early 1930s, although he'd done a few before that. And he became the chief architect of his own band, the later period band from 1933-34 on. And that, by extension, was the style that Benny Goodman's first big band was playing in, because Goodman hired Henderson to be his chief arranger. Anyway, all that to get us to 1956 and the Great South Bay Jazz Fest. So this was a reunion of many of the Henderson musicians, and thankfully this was early enough that uh, most of these musicians were in superb playing shape. They'd been playing, you know, top-level professional gigs for 25, 30 years, some of them at this point, and they were not at all old or beyond their powers, and they looked at this as a kind of a businessman's holiday to go back to some of these arrangements. And they uh, performed these arrangements probably how Henderson's band did them in the 1920s and 30s. You know, when you think of recordings from that period, they were about two and a half to three minutes long. So bands had to tailor their arrangements to that time limit. Duke Ellington created a whole style uh, creating arrangements of two and a half to three minutes, and for that matter, so did Jelly Roll Morton. Henderson's band didn't really do that. They just truncated performances, and, and we have... Um, interviews with musicians uh, who played with his band and who heard it, who said that performances could go five, ten minutes sometimes because they just extended for solos and let uh, the great soloists go chorus after chorus if they were really feeling the uh, feeling the heat on it and uh, build riffs and things like that. And the Henderson Band was probably the, the, the top-ranked jazz band among African Americans in New York at that point, and by extension the rest of the country as well. And that lasted until the end of the 1920s. So this band that assembled in 1957 was brought together by Rex Stewart, the cornet player who uh, had initially replaced Louis Armstrong in 1925, although he didn't last too long. He didn't feel he was up to the task, so he left and went on the road touring with Fletch uh, Fletcher's brother, Horace Henderson's orchestra, and then with some other groups as well, before coming back in the later 1920s, about 1927, 28, and um, really uh, fitting in with the band very well. So just to tell you the personnel in this band, it was done in two sessions, so they were slightly different, only one or two different people. We had Rex Stewart, Emmett Berry, Taft Jordan, and Joe Thomas on trumpets. Uh, all but Taft Jordan played with the Henderson Band. And uh, for the second session, Dick Vance replaced Emmett Berry. He too played with Henderson. For trombones, it was a, a, a heck of a trio. J.C. Higginbottom, Benny Morton, and Dickie Wells. All of them played with the Henderson Band at one point or another, just not together. And there'll be one tune later on that features all three of them. For saxophones, we have Hilton Jefferson playing lead alto, and we're going to have a program at some point later on featuring the solos of Hilton Jefferson. It was really a, a, a remarkable soloist. Uh, hard to describe his style, but we'll be hearing it a little bit later. And Garvin Bushell, who was uh, didn't play any solos on this recording, but he played alto and clarinet. He played with Henderson back in the Ethel Waters days in the very early 1920s before the band came together. And then he returned to the Henderson band in the late 1930s when it was playing at the Grand Terrace in Chicago. On tenor saxophones, we have Coleman Hawkins, who, as I said, was a, a Henderson stalwart from about 1923 up until the time he left for Europe in 1933. 
three. And his replacement, actually not his direct replacement, but uh, down the lane a little bit, was Ben Webster, who was also on this uh, recording session, and he played with him on those great 1934 recordings. On baritone sax was Haywood Henry. Haywood Henry was uh, known for playing with, um, I think, Erskine Hawkins' band. He was not a Henderson alum, but a very fine player. On clarinet was Buster Bailey. Mentioned that he came over with Louis Armstrong in 1924, and he was in and out of the Henderson band right up until about 1938. And uh, he was a remarkably fluent and technically assured clarinet player who played with practically all the great Harlem bands. He was good enough. He didn't have to go on tour too often. He could leave bands when the band left New York and immediately get something good with another band as well. The rhythm section was Red Richards on piano, Al Casey on guitar, Bill Pemberton on bass, and Jimmy Crawford on the drums, none of whom, to my knowledge, played with Henderson. Uh, Jimmy Crawford was known as Jimmy Lunsford's great drummer, and it's really an excellent rhythm section. So I think we're going to uh, listen to a couple of tunes right now before I tell you any more. I'll tell you about the soloists as we go, but the first two songs we're going to listen to uh, are a Henderson composition called Wrappin' It Up. Wrappin' It Up. This was from his 1934 band. This was one of Fletcher Henderson's first arrangements in this style that sort of led to the Benny Goodman style. In fact, Benny Goodman played this arrangement as well, and it is stretched out for many solos, and we'll talk about those when we get there. And then we're going to follow that up with a classic called the Sugarfoot Stomp, which was also known as the Dippermouth Blues when King Oliver recorded it in 1923 with Louis Armstrong on second cornet. When Armstrong came to the Henderson Band, uh, Don Redmond said, do you have anything you want to bring with you that we can arrange that you've been playing in Chicago? And Armstrong said he had a little book of tunes that he brought, and this was one of them that uh, Redmond liked. This was also a stock arrangement that they may have used too, but Redmond changed a few things. He put in a clarinet trio um, that isn't on a blues strain. It's on a 16-bar strain. You'll hear that. And this particular arrangement uh, features all of the soloists. It has a trumpet battle and a trombone battle in there too, and we'll talk about that. Uh, Sugarfoot Stomp was recorded in 1925 by the Henderson Band featuring Armstrong playing the King Oliver solo. Here it'll be taken by Rex Stewart on this recording. And Henderson recorded it numerous times, five or six times in 1931 uh, when he was between recording companies and just sort of playing uh, random recording dates pretty much. And this obviously was a very... Um, popular number the, uh, with the band and, and with their audience, and virtually the same arrangement over and over again. And some of the players featured on those 1931 recordings are here in 1957, including J.C. Higginbottom, Benny Morton, Rex Stewart, Coleman Hawkins, and uh, a couple of others as well. So without further ado, let us listen to Wrapping It Up, followed by the King, or excuse me, Wrapping It Up, followed by Sugarfoot Stomp.
Those were <laughs> stomping performances. You can imagine that those got the uh, audience going at the Roseland Ballroom and all over the place. The Henderson Band would tour uh, not too far afield from New York. They usually did a summer tour up to New England. They went up as far as Maine and the Shribman Ballroom circuit up around there. And then sometimes they go out as far as Chicago, usually into Pennsylvania, and sometimes down as far as Virginia and, and D.C., but not too much further than that. They were just too popular in New York. They didn't have to, and... Um, of course, the idea of traveling in the South for a black band at the time was not, not a very good one. And so most of the musicians chose not to do that and would often stay home and send substitutes. So it was just as easy sometimes not to do that. Anyway, we heard Wrapping It Up. As I said, that was a Fletcher Henderson tune and an arrangement from 1934. And I will give you the lowdown on the soloist started with Ben Webster on tenor. He was playing a kind of a soft style at that point, which was um, very different from Coleman Hawkins. We'll hear him later. After that was Rex Stewart on cornet, Benny Morton, Taft Jordan on trumpet, 
He was much better known for his association with Chick Webb and then later Duke Ellington, but he was a contemporary of all these musicians. Hilton Jefferson took a very interesting sort of angular alto solo uh, on this tune. He had been featured on it in the original record as well. Joe Thomas played the next solo on trumpet. Dickie Wells on trombone. Coleman Hawkins on tenor. Then J.C. Higginbottom on trombone. And then at the end, we heard the clarinet of Buster Bailey for half a chorus, and then uh, the ensemble came in and took it out with him shrieking over the top there. Very exciting piece. So we followed that up with the Sugarfoot Stomp. Again, a uh, version of the Dippermouth Blues. Uh, when it was a big band recording it, usually they called it the Sugarfoot Stomp, but not always. When Jimmy Dorsey and, uh, recorded it and the Dorsey Brothers, they called it Dippermouth Blues. Go figure. So it started with uh, Taft Jordan playing trumpet, and he was followed by another trumpeter, Joe Thomas, and then another trumpeter, Emmett Berry. All three very fine swing trumpeters. They traded choruses there. Then there was a clarinet and trio, a clarinet trio, rather, followed by a trombone solo by Benny Morton, another trombone by Dickie Wells, and another trombone by J.C. Higginbottom. Each one traded choruses. Very different stylists. Benny Morton was a, was a very urbane, sophisticated trombone player. He was known as a lead trombone player, but an excellent jazz player. Dickie Wells had a very humorous approach, and he used those different mutes and sort of had a very talkative style on trombone. And J.C. Higginbottom was just a, a, a flat-out blower. He, would, he, he was a driving force. He and Red Allen were a, a brass duo for many, many years. At this point in the late 50s. I think they were playing together at the Metropole in New York City uh, with a Dixieland band that also at times included Buster Bailey and Red Richards, who played piano on here. So they were all local New Yorkers as well. Following that, there was a clarinet solo by Buster Bailey, and then the classic King Oliver solo played by Rex Stewart. Three choruses of that. Uh, his own personal take on that, but something very interesting in the way he did it. He was a, he was a, a stylist, Rex Stewart was, and uh, no one sounded like him. Following that was a tenor battle between Ben Webster and Coleman Hawkins going back and forth, and uh, Webster sort of gets the worst of that. His sound was just not as big as Coleman Hawkins at this point in his career. He was focusing more on ballads and slow things. That was what he was known for, whereas Coleman Hawkins' uh, sound was justifiably um, lauded as, as, as an enormous. Um, even back in the 1920s, they said at one point uh, the lead trumpeter didn't show up, so Coleman Hawkins played the lead trumpet book on tenor sax, and he drowned out the rest of the band by doing it. So he was somebody that people followed, definitely. Then, uh, after that, we had a two-chorus ensemble that uh, brought a fever pitch back to things, and that was the end. So you can imagine that that was a, a version of that tune that could have been heard maybe on the bandstand in 1931 or 32 if the soloists were let go. Um, they could have signaled them to keep going and made up some new backgrounds and things like that. Very interesting um, how this went. So this album, the great... Uh, South Bay Jazz Fest, uh, big reunion of the Fletcher Henderson Band, uh, also featured some original compositions and some spontaneous ones as well. A little bit later, we're going to hear Honeysuckle Rose and King Porter Stomp, two more Henderson arrangements. But right now, we're going to hear two things that were done specifically for this recording date. First one is called Casey Stew. 
and apparently called that because it was based on a little riff that the guitarist Al Casey was playing in between takes, and they decided just to put together a blues performance. And they also decided that it was going to feature the three trombones, and it does, along with the rhythm section and Coleman Hawkins and Rex Stewart. The rest of the band took some time out on this one. This was a from a small group, smaller group session. I think it was the third session uh, uh, that put this album together. And then after that, we're going to hear what you've been hearing if you've been listening to this podcast at the beginning and the end. Our intro and outro music is a version of Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight, or Round About Midnight, and um, we think of it as a bebop tune, and a tune that featured Dizzy Gillespie and lots of other players, Dexter Gordon many years later, of course, but for whatever reason, Hilton Jefferson uh, was featuring himself on this number, I guess with some bands that he was playing with at the time in 1957, and they cooked up a little arrangement of this. Apparently it was made up by a, a fellow I don't know anything about named Jim Timmons. He was a uh, running part of the sessions, I guess, writing some of the music down to facilitate matters. So this is a, a beautiful ballad setting of Round Midnight, featuring the luscious alto sax of Hilton Jefferson with some Rex Stewart on the way. So, two tunes, a blues jam, a head arrangement called Casey Stew. You can hear the arrange, uh, the riffs behind the soloists being invented as they went, and a couple of times they didn't quite work, but uh, the spirit was there followed by a very sophisticated version of Round Midnight. Thank you. 
Two very different recordings. That Casey Stew is uh, obviously a spontaneous recording. I don't know if it's quite as spontaneous as they wanted it to appear by putting all that chatter at the beginning, but you can hear how some of those riffs just grew very organically from what the trombones were playing, and then, of course, you had those trombone soloists just chasing each other around like mad. The solo order in that case was, of course, Al Casey on guitar. Um, Dickie Wells started the trombone solos with three choruses, Hilton Jefferson played a three-chorus alto solo. Um, then Benny Morton, after him. Actually, Jefferson played two choruses, and then Benny Morton played three on trombone. Red Richards got his one solo uh, uh, of the day there, playing one chorus on piano. Then there was a bass solo by Bill Pemberton. 
And then J.C. Higginbottom took up the cudgel and, and played three choruses, very um, lively and in-your-face choruses. Then who could follow that but Coleman Hawkins with four choruses? And then after that, one, two, three, four, five choruses, jam session, with riffs coming in and out and um, people coming to the fore and Henderson, or rather uh, Hawkins and Rex Stewart and the trombones just going for broke on that. Really exciting performance. That was followed by the opposite number, a beautiful ballad performance of Round Midnight featuring Hilton Jefferson. Hilton Jefferson had played lead alto for Henderson, certainly. He had also played for King Oliver's band in the early 30s. He played for Cab Calloway, for uh, Noble Sissel, for uh, lots of different bands. In fact, he initially replaced, uh, he wasn't the initial replacement for Johnny Hodges with the Ellington band, but he played with Ellington uh, in Johnny Hodges' seat for a couple of years. In fact, he made their first LP um, with him and uh, recorded one of his very few solos with Ellington on a version of The Mooch. So we'll be hearing more of, of uh, Hilton Jefferson a little bit later. So we have two more recordings that we're going to round out this uh, performance, this podcast of the Great Reunion with. And these are two Henderson Evergreens. We have Honeysuckle Rose, the Fats Waller number, uh, which was recorded by Fletcher Henderson in 1932, one of his best recordings from that period. It features a riff which starts uh, out this performance that uh, came to be almost as popular as the actual melody of Honeysuckle Rose, and then lots of solos as well. And from the same session in 1932, uh, was recorded King Porter Stomp. They called it the new King Porter Stomp at that time. This is a tune by Jelly Roll Morton that had uh, entered the big band repertoire in the middle 1920s. There are a number of recordings by uh, big bands of the 1920s playing the stock arrangement of King Porter Stomp, one of whom was Fletcher Henderson, although that particular recording was lost. Apparently we have uh, mention of that recording being made in 1925 to feature Louis Armstrong, but Nobody knows what happened to it. It was destroyed. It was never issued, so we ain't got it. Henderson did record it in 1928 and using a little bit of the stock, but developing probably what was a head arrangement, probably some of Don Redmond's ideas, maybe some of Henderson's ideas as well. And uh, this was a tune that presumably they'd been playing ever since that had sort of evolved over time and to the uh, arrangement that sounds more familiar to our ears today. And uh, on that particular recording, Benny Morton and Coleman Hawkins and Buster Bailey participated. It was recorded again, as I said, in 1932 with Honeysuckle Rose featuring Rex Stewart, Higginbottom, Hilton Jefferson, and Coleman Hawkins again, all performers on this album that we're listening to today, and recorded again King Porter Stomp in 1933 featuring Hilton Jefferson and Hawkins one more time. So... Um, we will dive right in. These are two high-powered performances. I left King Porter to the end. They finished the album with King Porter Stomp, and I think you'll hear why when we get there. Uh, can't imagine how a band could have followed this performance with anything else or how another band could have. So we're going to listen to this right now. The Honeysuckle Rose was probably a head arrangement that was formalized by Fletcher Henderson. The King Porter Stomp was... A probably evolved over many years ahead arrangement and other ideas and then Henderson probably wrote it down himself in 1932 or 33. So here are our two versions of Fletcher Henderson classics from the early 30s here re-recorded in 1956 or excuse me 1957 as part of the Great South Bay Jazz Fest. <laughs> Thank you. 
Great South Bay Jazz Fest. This was not recorded at the festival. Apparently, the Voice of America did record that concert, but it's never come to light. I guess the Musicians Union said it couldn't be released, and I don't know if it was destroyed or what, but it was not issued. The next year, uh, they did the festival, and uh, Rex Stewart put together a similar band, maybe not quite as good, but uh, it was recorded, and there is an album out of that. That wasn't as exciting as this album was. So fortunately, they did go into the studio for RCA Victor and preserved this. These performers were all, you know, certainly at you know, a peak in their career. They were all playing fantastically well, at least as well as they had played um, back in the day when they had been with Henderson regularly. With one exception, I think Coleman Hawkins was playing better. Uh, the solo that he took at the end of, uh, or in the middle of King Porter Stomp was just unbelievable. It, it utilized harmonic awareness that he didn't have back in the 1920s and 30s that nobody did and uh, really launched him well beyond his contemporaries. He was considered sort of a father of the uh, bebop movement. Uh, players like Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk and even Dizzy Gillespie really thought very highly of Coleman Hawkins. Many of them played in his bands early on and uh, absorbed quite a lot. He was a very well-schooled musician, well-schooled in theory and technique, harmony, uh, and just a, a, an extraordinary musician, certainly one of the four or five great jazz improvisers uh, in history, as far as I am concerned. So I hope uh, that you have listened to some, if not all, of these four podcasts that I have just posted, and I will be encouraged to do some more. I already have some ideas. I'm thinking about doing... Uh, one on Tommy Dorsey's Clambake 7. He did some transcriptions in 1936 that were not commercially available. I have those. Those would be kind of interesting. Uh, some of Dizzy Gillespie's early recordings as a leader are, are quite good, too. I'm thinking about some more Western swing bands, some other vocalists who weren't terribly well-known, like Jane Green. Um, oh, I have lots of ideas. So hopefully there'll be enough interest to keep me going. So I hope you've enjoyed your jazz focus for the day. My name is John Clark, and we hope to encounter you again on these airwaves soon. So see you on the other side.